Pint Glass Football Podcast is presented by Better Edge, giving the edge back to the betters with no fee sports betting. At betteredge.com, you, not the books, set the price of betting lines so you can make bank with no VIG or sportsbook fees. Better Edge is available in 45 states for real money sports betting. Create an account and use code PGF for $10 on your first order. Play the game without getting played at betteredge.com. Welcome to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. This is Pint Glass Football. Drink beer, talk football. You know what it's about. If you're new to the show, hit that subscribe button. What's up, PGF Nation? I'm your host, Brad Fowler, and McKenzie Brewing is the official beer of Pint Glass Football. Follow them at McKenzie Brewing. Follow us at pintglassfootball.com. Got another great show, guys. The NFL is around the corner to Former first-round picks are already changing teams. I'm going to give you my thoughts on it. And I've got guest Tyler Greenewalt from Yahoo Sports to talk NFL, second-year quarterbacks, the Patriots' play-calling duties, Tua's make-or-break season, Devontae Adams and Derek Carr, and the rest of the loaded AFC West, paying big money for wide receivers, and much more more to get you guys ready for the NFL season. So let's crack a cold one and kick this off. Before we jump into the NFL, college football did the college football preview episode last week. Week zero kicked off was a lot of fun. Man, I missed bad on my week zero picks, guys. Sorry about that. Not starting off the season very good there. A lot of teams just didn't do what I expected, but it's tough. You know, first week of the year, always really hard to get a feel for what teams are going to look like because we haven't seen anybody play yet. So that's just kind of part of how it works. I'm sure my bets will get better as we go along. The most shocking thing about week zero, well, maybe it wasn't. If you guys listened to last week's episode, I talked about Scott Frost having the hottest seat in all of college football when it comes to head coaches. Man, that seat is lit on fire. There is no chance that this guy survives. I mean, Nebraska is going to have to rattle off like eight straight wins to save this guy's job, and there's no way that's going to happen. That loss to Northwestern was embarrassing. This guy clearly just is not cut out to be a big-time college football coach at a big-time program. Yeah, I know. He did well at Oregon as an offensive coordinator. He did really well at UCF. But clearly the big, bright lights and coaching at Nebraska are just too much for this guy. He has not gotten it done, and I think he's going to be seeing the exit here really soon. You just cannot lose to one of the worst programs in the Big Ten in a conference that's easily the second-best conference in college football. He's going to get pummeled again this year. He's got a terrible record, and there's no escaping it. The guy just doesn't get it done. People point to all the close losses, and yeah, this was another close loss, but guess what? Good coaches win close games, and this guy clearly just doesn't do enough winning. He's going to find himself coaching somewhere else next season. I guarantee it. 
But I want to jump into the NFL, guys. Recent NFL news, the Chicago Bears claimed offensive lineman Alex Leatherwood off of waivers today, recording this on Wednesday. They picked him up from the Las Vegas Raiders. The Raiders waived him on Tuesday. If you guys remember, he was the 17th overall pick in 2021. This was a guy who was supposed to be a franchise tackle coming out of Alabama. The guy struggled from day one. I mean, it was obvious right away that this guy couldn't play at this level. They tried moving him inside to play guard. I think it was only week four or five. They were already moving him to the guard position, a less athletic position because he was struggling versus NFL pass rushers. The Bears decide to pick him up. Bears head coach Matt Eberflus said that the Bears were, quote, surprised that he was available. Surprised? I mean, seriously? You were surprised? Have you seen this guy play? I'm surprised anyone picked him up. Most analysts, going back to that 2021 draft, thought that it was a huge reach. Taking him at 17 overall, it's one of the picks that you can point to and say, that's why Mike Mayock and John Gruden are no longer there. Now, Gruden's kind of a different story. We know about all that and the emails and all that stuff. I'm not going to get into that. But Mike Mayock struggled in the draft. Yeah, he found some diamonds in the rough later in some of the later rounds. But man, those early picks, those first round picks, they were absolutely horrendous. And this was another example of a huge miss with Alex Leatherwood. Like I said, most analysts thought this was a big reach. I went on this podcast when we break down our draft stuff like we do every year. We go in depth on all these guys. I said at best he's a second round pick. I actually thought he was more of a third round grade. I never thought in a million years he had any business going in the first round. And clearly the Raiders now under a new regime had seen enough of Alex Leatherwood. He struggled again in the preseason. They said, look, we're done with this guy. The real question is, is how bad is that Chicago Bears O-line? I mean, my goodness, you're going to pick up Alex Leatherwood? If you're that bad up front that you need to pick up this guy, that's just downright scary. I'm actually terrified for Justin Fields. Here's a young quarterback that they're trying to build around that they think can be a franchise quarterback, and he's going to play behind maybe the worst offensive line in the entire NFL. It's just not a good look for the Bears and I'm starting to think more and more it's going to be a long season in Chicago. Speaking of first-round bust, the Eagles traded wide receiver Jalen Rager to the Vikings for a seventh-round pick in 2023 and a conditional fourth-round pick for a guy that was the 21st overall pick in 2020. Really underwhelming career so far for this guy. In two years, he's only had 65 catches for a total of 695 yards and only three touchdowns in two seasons combined. Ironically, if you guys remember, he went one pick before the Vikings selected Justin Jefferson, who's now easily a top five wide receiver in the NFL, maybe a top three wide receiver in the league. This guy is an absolute stud. Now Jalen Rager comes over to the Minnesota Vikings, and I think at best, he becomes maybe their number four wide receiver in Minnesota. There's no way around it. This guy's been a huge, huge disappointment. I blasted this pick as well on this podcast when we did the NFL draft stuff. Like I said, we do it every year. We break down all these picks. We watch the tape. I didn't like this guy's game nearly enough to think it justified going in the first round. I thought he had talent. 
He had some speed. There were things to like about his game. Don't get me wrong, but he dropped way too many balls. He wasn't a complete wide receiver, and I thought he had no business going in the first round. Looking back at that draft, not only did the Eagles pass on Justin Jefferson like we spoke about, they also passed on Brandon Ayuk, T. Higgins, Michael Pittman Jr., and Chase Claypool. All these guys went after Jalen Rager in the draft. So this ends up being a colossal miss for a team that is really just struggled to draft wide receivers. It's a big reason why they traded for A.J. Brown. They had to fix that position and get an elite player on the outside if they're going to give Jalen Hurts any chance of success. Quite frankly, wouldn't be surprised if Jalen Rager is out of the league sooner than later. This guy just simply has not panned out. Excited to be joined by Tyler Greenewalt, who's a sports reporter for Yahoo Sports. Tyler, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Brad. Happy to be here. I want to start with an article that you recently wrote for Yahoo Sports on second-year quarterbacks in the NFL. The 2021 class was pretty disappointing for the most part. But as you talk about in this article, Tyler, history tells us that some of these guys could take a big step forward this season. You went beyond opinion. You dove into some metrics what did you find when researching this article? I mean, I think the the key thing to start off with with second-year quarterbacks is obviously the more reps you take, the better you're going to be. So all of these guys that are stepping into situations where they're reaching 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th games, they're obviously going to – the game will slow down a little bit, just as kind of you always hear about, about young players. The game slows down for them, and then suddenly they're able to figure it out, especially if there's continuity – in that offense and, and with those players. Now it can work both ways, obviously. But I, I think the key for, for most of these guys is obviously just making sure that they have a better supporting cast around them. So, I mean, Joe Burrow is, is probably the most recent example of a guy who kind of elevated his game in his second year based purely off of the fact that he, he had more time, even though he was coming off an ACL injury. He had his uh, his LSU running mate, Jamar Chase, and, and they were kind of able to sort of supercharge that rebuild from the jump. But it's definitely one of those things where you also need to have a better offensive line, which again, Burrow had. He had an injury, uh, I think Jonah Williams was there like 2019 first round pick and he took a year to come back in 2020. And then last year he was he was good enough in the offensive line. Still wasn't there yet, but once you have an improved offensive line, good playmakers around you and just more reps in that system, you can can make that jump and so a lot of the guys that i did research on for the most part saw better production especially with like completion percentage and yards per attempt hopefully these second year guys because this was a this is a, a big class last year that just like completely flopped and a lot of that had to do with situations especially with trevor lawrence especially with justin fields but they they kind of all have a pretty good stake to to improve well maybe not justin fields but (laughs) the the rest of the the rest of the uh players are are looking pretty solid we'll see what happens with zach wilson and that injury that that could in theory derail his career a bit if he's only looking at maybe a 10 game season or or a little bit more but it's exciting to see the the one issue with researching for that piece was the fact that trey lance had like almost no reps so i couldn't really make a a good guesstimation as to his potential but it seems like all all signs are looking like he's 
he's looking solid in, in the preseason, especially with that that team kind of um, fully loaded with Debo back and, and the defense uh, prepared to be as good as it is. So yeah, it'll be it'll be an interesting year for these second year guys, and I think with a lot of these young quarterbacks, like looking back to Joe Burrow's year, Burrow looks legit, Justin Herbert looks legit, and then Tua, as I, I wrote about later, is kind of hitting this. We'll see whether or not he he's good yet or if he's just going to be kind of like your your borderline starter in the NFL. So big year for for the 2020 class or 2021 class, uh, especially with the 2022 class kind of being non-existent outside of Kenny Pickett. Yeah, you mentioned Trey Lance. I want to stick with him for a second here because like you mentioned, he didn't really get a chance to showcase what he could do. And it's hard to really judge him at this point, but he was viewed as a big time talent who just needed more experience under his belt when he came out of the draft. Now, he was able to sit behind Jimmy Garoppolo, as we know, last season. This year, he gets the chance to start on a great roster with a great offensive minded head coach. What do you expect from Lance in year two, or is it just too hard to judge based on what we've seen? I mean, it's definitely one of those things where unless you are a tape grinder with with Trey Lance, during his his time in college and his his practice reps and his preseason reps, it's going to be hard to make a a well rounded, educated guess as to his actual production on the field. But just from kind of outside looking in, hearing everything from from camp, and and knowing how highly coveted of a prospect he was out of uh, North Dakota State, I mean, and especially that offense too. Like he, we saw what Jimmy Garoppolo looked like when he went from New England to San Francisco. That was a terrible team. I think it was in 2017. That was a that was not a good team. And he went seven and zero to end the year. Granted, Jimmy Garoppolo kind of floundered for the rest of uh, his time there. I mean, they still went to a Super Bowl with him. So the offense is designed to help the quarterback. That's why so many disciples from that Shanahan McVay style offense go on to get head coaching jobs and, and do do well. So I think for for Trey Lance, it's just a matter of taking what the offense gives him and having that year to sit behind Garoppolo and not even necessarily learn from Garoppolo himself, but just kind of see the offense from the bench and see what works and what doesn't and then be able to touch that offense himself with the ball. Like you, you look at other quarterbacks who got the sit. You, you, Patrick Mahomes is the, the one that everyone will look to just because of him going from not starting directly to to winning a Super Bowl, or I think that was his MVP year. But regardless, I think for Trey Lance, it's one of those situations where his ceiling is incredibly high just because you know at how good that roster is. And his floor, though, could be even lower. I think we saw enough last year in the times that he did play where he he does have the ability, if he can string together enough positive plays together. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And like you touched on, he's going to be in a good situation. Shanahan's going to have him set up for success. They're going to generate easy reads for him. They're going to lean on the run because we know that's what Shanahan loves to do. And that's going to set things up for him in the play-action game and the bootlegs and a lot of the things that he likes to do in that offense. And I think with that roster and the pieces around him, I think he's poised to have a good year. And a guy that's not going to have too much on his plate because he's in a good situation. I don't think they're going to ask him to do too much. And as long as he just doesn't make too many mistakes, I think he's going to be just fine and be able to develop and come along. It's going to be fascinating to see what he does here in year two. Now, I want to stick with this theme of year two, guys. Mac Jones had the most successful rookie season 
now enters a year two without offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels. I feel like it's putting a lot of pressure on him this year because reports are that Joe Judge and Matt Patricia will be handling the offense, and neither of these guys has NFL experience on that side of the ball. The media has made this into a big story, Tyler, this podcast included, but are we all just overreacting or is there legit reason for the Patriots or Patriots fans, I should say, to hit the panic button? There's there's about two or three different directions you can go and you think about this. It's either one, this is the Patriots and specifically Bill Belichick seeing what Mac Jones did last year and seeing what he's done this offseason and being like, okay, we trust him to quickly turn into kind of a signal signal caller who can kind of lean on his own intellect rather than having to have a play caller tell him exactly what to do, which is a pretty it's a pretty big jump, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, as a guy who uh, – Mac Jones was, was great, definitely better than expected in, in year one. But, I mean, he wasn't a guy that everyone was sort of clamoring as the next Tom Brady. So that that's one way to look at it. The other one is sort of Belichick trying to do this weird thing where he is elevating the, the way we think about offensive play calling to where it's a non-traditional perspective where you're going with two guys who have been in the the Belichick system for so long that they understand how it needs to be run without actually having any experience in calling plays. And again, I don't know. I don't no idea if that's going to work. I have my doubts, but that kind of comes to the, to the third part, part where it's Belichick has kind of proven over his career to get the best out of both his coaching staff and his players, both of which typically haven't excelled outside of his sort of kingdom if you will. So, I mean, I haven't been to a point where I I can start to look at what Bill Belichick does and question it yet. I think he's proven to have the football mind that others don't in a less traditional sense. So I'm going to not trust him blindly yet, but kind of temper my sort of hesitations with sort of these weird things. People, People will laugh at it mostly because of the names. I feel like they look at Joe Judge and they look at Matt Patricia and they see guys that failed as head coaches, continued their careers as head coaches, and now they're back with the Patriots. So if it was anyone else, I don't know if people would be making light of it as much, but I think Belichick has has proven himself and given himself enough clout to kind of at least get the benefit of the doubt until proven wrong. Now this could all blow up in week one, and the offense could be absolutely abysmal, and then suddenly, I mean, th- that's that's when I would say the panic button would need to be hit. We, we need to see actual actual failure on the point of this offense in my opinion it's the names and the fact that everyone has been looking for a reason to doubt the patriots for the past 20 years and outside of last year and the year that tom brady tore his acl the patriots have gone above and beyond expectation yeah no you're definitely right about that and even the year he tore his acl i think they went 11 and 5 that year with a backup so it really tells you just how great this guy is he's the greatest coach of all time we know that and you're 100 percent right yeah when you when you've got a guy with his kind of resume and his track record it's hard to doubt him even when us outsiders are looking in saying wait patricia and joe judge it seems crazy on paper but if there's anybody that could make this work it would be bell belichick so it wouldn't surprise me if at the end of the year we're all looking back at this story, so to speak, or this headline and saying, wow, we were dead wrong about this, or they have a top 10 offense in the league, something like that. But it also wouldn't surprise me if it totally blew up in their face. I think that's why it's become such a polarizing headline this offseason, and and I think that was a great take and a really uh, balanced take by you there. Now, 
you also wrote an article on two attack of Aloha and how it's a now or never for him in Miami. I could not agree with you more on that, Tyler. You pointed out the reports that the Dolphins were trying to lure Deshaun Watson to Miami, which really just tells us all that the management isn't sold on him as a franchise quarterback either. Now they drafted Jalen Waddle, they trade for Tyree Kill, they upgraded the offensive line. What will Tua need to do this year to prove he's the guy going forward in Miami? If we're thinking of just like boom or bust situation, if they make the playoffs, I think they'll be fine, especially if Tua is the reason why they they make it there. But I mean, I I think at the very least, you're going to need to see positive improvements statistically, both in the wins columns and just in stats overall. Now, fortunately, Tua has not been, he hasn't even been that bad of a quarterback, to be honest. I think it's sort of this this misnomer about him as a quarterback relative to the other guys drafted that year. I mean, you you look at that draft class and you remember, okay, it was tank for Tua because Tua was going to be the clear-cut number one prospect. He has the arm. He has the accuracy. He he knows how to play with, with good players at Alabama. He's won championships. So it's one of those things where like, and then he gets injured and then suddenly we kind of forget about him and Joe Burrow goes first overall and you turn into a great quarterback. Tua goes fifth overall based off of the potential that everyone saw. And he's obviously still injured his rookie year. So we can't really, we don't really understand who he is yet. And then then the worst part is Justin Herbert goes right after him. And he's immediately super good. So you're, you're kind of sandwiching Tua in with these two generational quarterbacks in the same draft class. And if Tua doesn't become that, then suddenly he's a failure. And I think he would need to probably not like what Burrow didn't win a Super Bowl, but he would need to show the, kind of that Justin Herbert improvement in terms of touchdowns and yards and and just be the guy that the Dolphins need to win. And, and if they win, if they make it to the playoffs, then I think that's enough for for that that front office to kind of be like, okay, we can we can take a little breath. We can focus on continuing to build build around him because now he does have a great offensive line. They got Terod Armstead, they got Tyreek Hill. If that's not enough to see improvement from Tua, then they know and then they can start looking at the next draft class because that's that's kind of where a lot of teams are looking. It's the same situation with Jalen Hurts, ironically, in Philadelphia where the Eagles have two picks and they're looking at the 2023 class being like, if Jalen Hurts doesn't work out, we have options. I think the Dolphins, unfortunately for Tua, have been thinking about that since before they drafted Tua and have continued to think about that while he played for the team. And the other way I framed that story too was it, it's it's now or never for him, sure, but it's also either the beginning or the end of his future with the Dolphins. I think the first three years of his career there are kind of his origin story in the NFL because year one was the, the Ryan Fitzpatrick slash injured year where he was still coming back from his hip injury. Last year was pretty much his rookie year if you want to think about him being the full-fledged starter. But that offense was not there yet. There was all that turmoil with the Sean Watson courting from from either management or Brian Flores. We, we'll never know. Or maybe we will at some point if the NFL releases more <laughs> more findings. But in, in any event, it's one of those things where now I think there isn't any quarterback out there that the Dolphins could potentially trade for or target until the draft. But they're not going to look at that until they see what they have in Tua and they gave him the weapons to, to prove that. And it's either his beginning as the, the Dolphins starter for the next couple of years or it's the end. It helps, too, that the division is kind of wide open for the first time 
in a while, or at least the Dolphins being in it. This is a year where the Dolphins could sneak into the playoffs with a wild card. I don't see them being the Bills for the division, but it could work out really well for Tua in the long run. It could make him a lot of money in the end as well because he's coming up on a potential extension or at least getting his fifth-year option after this year. So it's it's big for both sides, and at least the Dolphins did enough to give him enough weapons to to prove one way or the other. Yeah, you're definitely right about that, and it definitely is a big, big year for him as far as what his future is going to be in Miami. You hit on it perfectly and in that article as well. And I think you're right. You touched on something there that really stood out to me. I think the fact that Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert's success has really magnified Tua's mediocrity because I don't think he's been a terrible quarterback, so to speak, but I think the fact that those two guys have been so great, Joe Burrow putting up you know, big numbers, having big success, making it to a Super Bowl, Justin Herbert being the rookie of the year, breaking all kinds of records as far as statistically. I think those two guys have really kind of magnified the situation for Tua and made people really question, well, you know, how come he isn't playing up to that level? I think it also hurts that he got drafted ahead of Justin Herbert. I think that's what really stings the most. If he would have been the third quarterback taken and didn't live up to it, he would be just a, a guy on a long list of third quarterbacks taken that didn't pan out where the other two did. And so instead, I think we look at it so differently because of that draft class. Now, I want to stick here with the young quarterbacks here. You touched on Zach Wilson. Now, he's a guy who made the wrong type of headlines this offseason. He's now dealing with an injury after week one of preseason. At the time of this recording, it's not quite clear how bad the injury will be, but it feels like the pressure to show progress this season in New York is building. What do the Jets need to do this year to show that the rebuild is working? The Jets don't need to make the playoffs. The Jets don't need to win nine or ten games this year for for it to be shown improvement. They they just need to show that they're competitive. And I think I've always looked at rebuilding teams less at a wins or losses perspective and more of can you compete in a game up until the end? And and like a great example of that is last year. The 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 Detroit Lions looked bad. However, they also didn't get blown out of games like the Jets did. So for all the highs and lows that the Jets had all year, whether it was almost beating the Bucks be, or actually beating the Titans or somehow beating the Bengals with Mike White, the Jets had just as many, if not more, absolutely blowout losses. And that can't happen in year two, no matter what. For it to be not a failure of a season, they would probably need to win at least six games, in my opinion, which is two more than they won last year. Not a very high bar, but they do have a really tough schedule to start. The first, I think, nine games of the year before their bye week are the entire AFC North, the entire AFC East, the the Broncos with Russell Wilson, and obviously the Packers with, with Aaron Rodgers. So it's not going to be an easy feat, which is why I think wins and losses won't matter too much unless, of course, they win more than they are expected to. But if, if Zach Wilson is able to shake off sort of the the mistakes of of his rookie year, which is not getting the ball out fast enough, limiting turnovers, and just making overall good decisions on the field, then I think the Jets can come out of the season feeling a little bit better about themselves, especially as they head into into year three. 
the big thing with the Jets, too, is the fact that the first two years of the Joe Douglas regime were all about kind of shedding the mistakes of the past. And this is kind of the first year where there aren't any bad contracts. There's not any bad fits on the team. And they were finally able to draft the guys that they wanted to in 2021 and 2022. The 2020 draft was for Adam Gase. And unfortunately, the only starter from that draft that's left is the punter, Braden Mann, because obviously Becton's out for the year. The rest of those players are either not on the team anymore or backups. So it's one of those things where 2020 this year is going to be kind of the pseudo year one for the Joe Douglas, Robert Sala regime, just in terms of everything that happened for the past decade is kind of been wiped from the books. If Zach Wilson shows uh, marginal or not even marginal, if he shows uh, significant improvements in a lot of the statistics and kind of the eye test things that you saw and didn't like out of him in year one. So we'll see the, the injury to his knee certainly doesn't help things just because it's going to be hard to evaluate his body of work when he's not starting until week three or week four. But they, like with two in the Dolphins, they have the weapons around him for him to be successful. And I think in whatever time he plays this year, if he doesn't show that enough, then the Jets are going to start looking at this thing like it's a Sam Darnold situation or Geno Smith situation all over again. The season hasn't even started yet, and all of the promise of this team is kind of quickly fading with them losing their their tackle and and their quarterback. Pint Glass Football Podcast is presented by Better Edge, bringing the edge back to the betters with no fee sports betting. At BetterEdge.com, you, not the books, set the price of betting lines so you can make bank. Better Edge is available in 45 states for real money sports betting. Play the game without getting played at BetterEdge.com. Yeah, you're certainly right. And they had what most considered to be an outstanding draft, and that that could certainly help. But once again, it points to what you're talking about. It's a young squad. It's a developing team, but definitely not the kind of start here to the preseason that Jets fans are probably hoping for. Now, I want to touch on another article that you did for Yahoo Sports about Derek Carr and Devontae Adams rekindling what they did in college. Now with the Raiders, the AFC West is loaded, but with Adams and new head coach Josh McDaniels, who's one of the best offensive minds in the game, how special could this duo in this offense be in Las Vegas? I mean, the easy way to to look at it is to look at what they did in, in college, and they led they led FBS in, I think Carr was yards and passing touchdowns, and Adams was receptions, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns. That was, in I think, over a two-year stretch that they they played together. They led college football in that. So you you look at that as kind of like the ceiling. It's like, okay, okay they, could be, they could repeat what Aaron Rodgers did with Devontae Adams over the past couple of years. I, I was talking to Derek Carr, and I was like, what do you think your and Devante's kind of tandem potential is? Like you look at, you have the Steve Youngs and Jerry Rice. You see Randy Moss with, with Tom Brady. I mean, you, you can rattle off any number of quarterback wide receiver tandems. And I was like, where do you think you're going to land in all this? And obviously he's not going to give an answer. He just says to be decided. But it certainly is you're looking at two guys who train, have trained together all offseason for the past decade. I've talked to I talked to many of their coaches and, and friends from from Fresno and they all say that these guys are they consider each other like best friends. They have this sort of 
indescribable twin telepathy when it comes to how they are able to communicate on the field. Like uh, I was talking to Josh Harper and uh, Isaiah Bercy, who were two of the other wide receivers in that offense at Fresno, and they were both like, yeah, Derek was great at hand signals. Um, like he would signal what the play would be to the receivers and they would figure it out. But for for Devante, it was a little bit different where he just kind of looked at him and they both were able to figure out what the other one was thinking just because they both knew how they processed the game, how they read coverages. That trust, that takes years to develop and they don't have to wait to develop that. They have it based off of a decade of experience of living together, playing together, going out to eat together, hanging out with each other's families. So the the ceiling is certainly there. I'm not going to say that they're going to reach those heights just because we haven't even seen them really play together yet. But it, it's certainly one of those situations, especially in the Josh McDaniels offense, where it could be it could certainly be special. And James Jones, who actually played with both of them separately, he played for the Packers, I think Devontae's uh, rookie year in Green Bay, and then he played with Derek Carr in Oakland at the time during uh, his second year. Basically, what James Jones was saying was like, everyone is going to criticize Devontae for leaving Aaron Rodgers for Derek Carr. And, and you saw all the headlines all offseason where Derek Carr was, or sorry, Devontae Adams was hyping up Carr, saying he's similar to Aaron. He's going to be a Hall of Famer like Aaron. They, uh, they both have sort of the same talent. And obviously, from a production standpoint, that is completely inaccurate. <laughs> but at the same time, like the way James Jones was telling me was that he's not thinking oh, I'm going from one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time to just Derek Carr. I'm going from one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time to one of the greatest friends of mine of all time. And it's one of those things where it's not football for them anymore. They're playing backyard football where they're just tossing it around and they're having fun. And that kind of adds an element to the game that makes it easier, especially for two guys who've been in the NFL as long as as both Adams and, and Carr have. It's one of those things where... Like I was saying before, with kind of second-year players, it takes time for you to understand the game. The game is slowed down. The game is easy for them now, more or less. I mean, Derek Carr has proven to be, at the very least, top 15, top 20 quarterback in the NFL, at the very least, just based off of production and, and what he's been able to do on the field. Devontae Adams, obviously, top three. Justin Jefferson refers to him as the number one receiver in the NFL. So, like, you take two guys that are already – at the top or, or at least ascending to the top of the league and you add in that kind of baked in 10 years of playing together or at least knowing how to play with each other it's it's one of those fun situations that will be very exciting to watch whether or not it equates to record-breaking statistics on the field we'll see but it, it's certainly one that that i'm looking forward to and and also it, it's one of those things where it was so uncommon to pair your college quarterback with his primary pass catcher and now this year it seems to be like the the new in vogue thing with like obviously chase and burrow were, were together last year uh and jalen and tua with the dolphins but now you have smith and jalen hurts kyler uh and marquise brown uh on the Cardinals. so it's one of those things where everyone kind of understands that you can have success based off of kind of working together in the past you don't have to you don't have to spend extra time trying to get two players to play well together if they already like playing with each other from college you you try and make that happen 
think the chemistry can't be understated here because these are two guys that have history and a lot of offseason training together that you touched on. I think the chemistry is really going to be baked in. And then you add, like I mentioned, Josh McDaniels, who I think is one of the best offensive coordinators in the game. They've got pieces around Devontae Adams with Darren Waller and Hunter Renfro. I think the Raiders could be in for a special year, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Now, I want to stick with the AFC West here. This offseason really became an arms race with every team in the division being aggressive and making big moves in free agency. It's become the most talked about division that I can recall in a long time. So how do you think it all shakes out this year on the field? The way I look at it, the AFC West is it's the best quarterback division in, in football right now, bar none. Like you can't pick four other quarterbacks in one division that are better than the four combined in this one. But in my opinion, it, it's still the Chiefs until someone else comes in and proves that it's still the Chiefs division to lose. They have kind of the leg up in that they have the best quarterback, they have the best coach, and they still have more or less the best playmakers. Yeah, you take out Tyreek Hill, but Travis Kelsey is still there. Juju is still a very good wide receiver. Um, he's just had a couple of down or injured injured years. So the Chiefs, I think, are are where are where you need to start. I mean, you saw last year they didn't look good to start the year. And then they still won the whole thing. <laughs> so it's unless another, and that's what the whole the whole offseason was about, is trying to knock them off the pedestal. After them, you have to look at the Chargers next just because of how they, they were the team last year, I think, that got so close every single time and even almost made the playoffs. And just a couple of unlucky bounces and suddenly they're, they're not competing for anything at the end of the year. Justin Herbert gets another year under his belt. They have effectively the exact same offense again and a much better defense with J.C. Jackson uh, at corner and Khalil Mack uh, on the edge. So I think the next team to kind of ascend past the Chiefs would likely be be Herbert. I, I know people don't think the Raiders have a shot relative to the rest of the division, but I do think because that team has so many weapons, as you were mentioning, on offense. And that defense was great last year and is even better this year with, with Chandler Jones. I think they're kind of one of those dark horse teams that could come out of come out of nowhere. The, the sexy pick is to take the Broncos just because of Russell Wilson and you get that Green Bay offense with Nathaniel Hackett. But I don't know. I feel like that is one of those... like two obvious picks that is just not going to work out not because i don't think russell wilson will be good but i just think it's going to take time for that to work because russell wilson has never played for another head coach he's had plenty of different offensive coordinators but it's mostly still been the pete carroll let's run the ball and if we need to russ just kind of toss it up and someone will catch it he's got a better team in denver but I just I think there's going to be a little bit of a, a grace period, especially Nathaniel Hackett's going to be a first time head coach. Like say what you want about Josh McDaniels with the Broncos. What was that? 15, 10 years ago. That's old news. That doesn't that doesn't matter anymore. Josh McDaniels has had so much time working with offenses and working with different players and learning under Belichick for so long. I think we can kind of give him more of a benefit of the doubt as a, as a brand new head coach than we can for Nathaniel Hackett. So if you needed me to make a prediction as to how I think the, the division shakes, shakes out, I think it goes the Chiefs, the Chargers, the Raiders, and then the Broncos. Granted, all those teams could be in playoff contention, and only two to three of them, or maybe even only one, will make it depending on how the rest of the AFC plays out. So 
it doesn't mean that they're all it doesn't mean that I think the Broncos are going to be bad. I just think statistically at the end of the day wins losses they'll probably be at the bottom. Yeah, that's another great take by you. I've had several NFL writers and analysts on the show in recent weeks, and there seems to be a lot of them that agree with you on the Broncos. A lot of them have have uttered similar uh, statements about their feelings on Denver and kind of pumping the brakes on them a little bit. You're certainly not alone in that opinion. Looking at the Chiefs, like you mentioned, everyone talks about the loss of Tyreek Hill, but I think you touched on it. They added quantity over quality, so to speak, and it might be a deeper wide receiver room this year. And I still put a lot of faith in, like you said, Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid to be near the top, if not at the top of this division. L.A., you touched on as well, might have the best roster in the NFL. For me, the big question mark is the head coach. I still don't know if I trust Brandon Staley. And when I look at the Raiders, I'm totally with you. This is a team that I think could be a dark horse team, not only in the AFC, but especially to to possibly even win this division it's it's really going to be fascinating to watch this thing play out because there's no matter how we look at it there's going to be a team or two that is outside of the playoffs looking in that we're going to look at and say wow that was a really good football team that didn't make it just because of the depth of this division i don't recall ever there being a time where i could look at all four teams and you could make a legitimate case for any of them to finish either first or fourth and it you could be a compelling case so it's really going to be fascinating. I know we're all kind of waiting to see how it plays out. I mentioned Tyreek Hill. We mentioned Devontae Adams. They were both big-time acquisitions this offseason. You wrote a story about the shift that we've seen in the NFL, paying big for established wide receivers. So two-part question. Why have we seen this shift in NFL team-building philosophy, and are the moves worth it? I think for for wide receivers, it's one of those things, and this is going to happen with every position in the NFL. It's gonna, it's just you're going to have to pay more to get the best, and people are going to blame Christian Kirk and the Jaguars for for that contract. And it certainly it certainly is a major part because if Christian Kirk is getting X amount of money, all the receivers that are better than him are going to want more than that. But I think it's it's less about Christian Kirk and just understanding that wide receivers impact the game so much that the best ones are going to want what they think they're they're owed relative to a the market and b the fact that quarterbacks make so much money. I don't think it'll ever reach that mark. That mark. But we had the first uh, like I was right about it. The, the Calvin Johnson's deal. Let's see if I can pull it up again quickly. It was it would be like a bargain right now? Like he was seven years, one hundred thirteen million dollars would have paid him sixteen million annually. That would be twenty second in the NFL right now. And I think you can make a case that there weren't twenty two other wide receivers better than Calvin Johnson at any point in time over the past couple of years. So it's one of those things where I think it's just these guys think they deserve it, and a team is always going to pay for it. I think the Chiefs looked at Tyreek Hill and they were like, hey, we know you, you want to be a top paid wide receiver and we'll certainly pay you to be close to the top. But we think we can do more if you take less or just it, we can find better solutions for our offense without having to give you that much money. So they just they got rid of him. The, the Devontae Adams one is very different, I think, because that was less about the money and more about Devontae Adams not seeing a future in Green Bay unless Aaron Rodgers was there. Um, because there were reports that the Packers offered him the 
relatively the same deal that the Raiders did, but Devontae Adams didn't know how long Aaron would be in Green Bay. And if you're if you're a wide receiver who's one of the better players in the NFL, why do you want to stick around with a team that doesn't have a future past two years, especially if you're going to sign a three or four year deal? And as I think was alluded to him in a couple of press conferences, like that kind of put the idea of potentially teaming up with Derek Carr on the table. So like those two things combined, you're going to go for it 10 times out of 10. So they're two very different situations, but I think it's one of those where the best wide receivers in the NFL are going to get money from someone. So unless you're a team that cares that much about the position, you're you're going to have to pay for it. Like the, the best example is the Titans. The Titans looked at AJ Brown and they didn't want to pay him. He was de- like, he he's worth, all these guys are worth the money that they're getting paid simply because someone's going to pay it. So the Titans see AJ Brown, they're like, okay, I think we can get a replacement level player, which <laughs> it's one of those things where I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand why you don't want to pay for that guy. And then you look at the, the Seahawks, the Seahawks didn't need to pay DK. They could have found a they easily could have found a trade partner, but they like him as a player. They think he's an important part of their future, so they'll keep him around. I don't know if I have a, a really good answer for why it's it, teams are paying for it rather than other than just that's the market keeps going up and up and up, and you see the impact that that players make. I think the honestly the most telling part will be what happens uh, with Justin Jefferson. Uh, and then immediately after Jamar Chase, because those are going to be wild contracts, because at that point, those guys will definitely be considered. I mean, they already could be considered top five wide receivers in the NFL. They'll definitely be a top five wide receiver in the NFL by the time their extensions come around. They're they're going to be looking at ridiculous contracts. And that'll, I think, unless someone comes after that, that we don't expect, that's going to kind of be where the plateau hits, because right now, they're setting sort of the the level of what you're expecting from a young wide receiver. And is it worth it? Again, that's we'll we'll find out with Devontae Adams and, and Tyree Kill this year. If you have if you're a team with a really good quarterback, I think it's worth it because you can you need to have that impact player to take the next step. And so if you think you're just one player away, you gotta swing for the fences and you gotta get that guy. If you're a team like the Dolphins and you're just trying to bring in a player who wants to be there and you think that he can make your quarterback look better, I don't know if that's a good that's a good investment. And and I looked at the war for the wins above replacement for all of them and like Devontae Adams was the only one that made sense to pay for. The rest were like they were certainly impactful, but not to the point where you need to allocate so much money. And I think you you look at the two Super Bowl teams last year, didn't pay that much for their their wide receivers at the time. Granted, Cooper Cup just got a major deal in in L.A. and Jamar Chase is on a rookie contract, so they kind of have the benefit. And T. Higgins is on a rookie deal for for the Bengals as well. So they kind of all got they, both of them got lucky, and they got good young players to ascend quickly. But it's one of those things where I don't know if you can name the last wide receiver to be the reason that a team won the Super Bowl. That was like a, a very well paid wide receiver. Certainly lots of receivers have been the reason for Super Bowls in the past, but never none of them are top five paid guys. So it's again one of those remain to be seen situations. But like Amari Cooper is a great example where they had to pay him to keep him. Didn't help the Cowboys win at all. And now they shipped him away for what a fifth, sixth round pick. 
I think one of the interesting ones will be what happens with Stefan Diggs and the Bills because that was a great deal for both of the teams or for both the Bills and and Stefan, but and then they could win a Super Bowl even with that that deal under contract. So it, it all depends on the situation. I personally probably wouldn't pay for for a wide receiver unless I had one of those stud quarterbacks that I think can can take the team to the next level. Man, Tyler, you just laid that out absolutely perfectly, like you always do for Yahoo Sports. Once again, we've been excited to have Tyler Greenewalt from Yahoo Sports on the show. Go check out his work. He's always got great stuff. Tyler, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem, Brad. This was uh, this was a really good time. I really appreciate the questions and uh, going through everything. It was it was good chatting it out, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a really fun season. I think a lot of awesome storylines, a lot of changing players, a lot of changing quarterbacks, and uh, hopefully it lives up to the billing, but I don't see why it wouldn't. That is going to do it for today's episode presented by Better Edge. Hope you enjoyed it, PGF Nation. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on new episodes, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at PGF Podcast.